Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift given is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be, as it were, first fruits among his creation. Today we're going to be taking a look at temptation. We, we have quite the contrast to where we were last week, because last week we're talking about perseverance through the ugly stuff of life, but now we're swinging over and we're talking about the temptations that we are going to face, and that every single person on the face of the planet has and will continue to face things called temptation. No one is exempt. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, what gender you are, what social economical uh, status you are in life. It doesn't matter. Temptation is an equal opportunity offender. And it will come to each and every one of us, and it does not matter. Now, what I want us to see as we go into James chapter 1, verse 13, I want you to look at the shift. Because last week when we talked about perseverance, if you were to wrap up everything we talked about, the key to perseverance is close, close proximity to God. Now, I didn't say those phrases last week, but if you just look at it from a summary standpoint, it was all about close proximity. James says, he starts off the letter by saying, I am a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's close proximity. Then he goes on, he says, God is going to help you through all the ugly stuff in life, and God is orchestrating things and events in your life for there to be something beautiful in your life, but your job is to stay close in your faith. That's close proximity to God. If you're lacking in any kind of wisdom, all you have to do is ask of God, believe without doubt, that God will give it to you. So it means that we go to our knees in prayer. We seek his face in his word. That's close proximity to God. Then in our passage last week, it talked about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man was self-sufficient, but the poor man was God-sufficient. And so that's close proximity to God. And then we have finally the reward at the end of life He's going to give a crown of life to those who love God. Close proximity to God. Do you get the picture? The way that we persevere is close proximity to God. Now, here's the enemy who comes into the equation, and that's what James is doing. He's very real. He, he deals with us at where we're at in life, and he says the enemy's going to come, and he doesn't want you to stay in close proximity to God in the shelter of his care. What he wants is for you to be pulled away and find your fulfillment in something else outside of Jesus. Do you realize that that's a simple definition of temptation? When you find your fulfillment in something other than Jesus Christ. 
And the fact is, in this world of ours, we have all kinds of things to distract us, all kinds of things that will want to pull us away from God where we would find our fulfillment in those kinds of things. Please know that we don't need to leave the safety of God, but we will always, always in this life have this strong urge to walk away and do things. There's going to be a temptation that's going to draw us away. What are the things that we're going to be drawn away to do? Well, it could be for a moment or it could be for a very long time. It might be at a moment that I decide to slander somebody. It could be at a moment that I decide to gossip about somebody. The conditions are right. It's everybody's in the lunchroom. We're talking about, and all of a sudden, you find yourself in the midst, in a moment, in a snap moment. We, it could be the uh, uh, sexual temptation. There are all kinds of temptations in life. When we look at the scriptures, we have overeating. We have disrespect. We have slander. We have self-reliance. We have worry. We have manipulation. We have bitterness. We have narcissistic behavior. We have also self-deprecation. And of course, we have the all-too-familiar lustful thoughts. And some of them even go deeper, where they go into addictions. Addictions to alcohol or drug or sexual things or media. So there's all kinds of things that will draw us away from God. If you read the scriptures, you find lists all the time of these sins. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9 sometime. Write it down, look at it later. It'll give you a list of sins. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28 to 32, gives us another list. Now what's interesting, in that list it says, we will even invent ways to do evil. You wouldn't think that we could invent more ways to do evil, but if you follow life on social media, you'll know that people are inventing new ways for evil all the time. All you have to do, and I don't recommend it, is follow hashtags, and hashtags will take you further and further down the path of temptation, and it could be very, very evil. There's some good things that happen, but there can be some very evil things that happen in social media. The fact is, there's no shortage of identifying the things that lure us away from God in the scriptures. God is very, very open about it. So the question is, how do we deal with this? What should we do as a Christ follower to defeat temptation? Is it possible for you and I to be victorious over sin? Is it possible that our faith can be a, could outmaneuver the tactics of the enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy from you? Is there, too sin, is there a sin that's too big for God to forgive? If I've been away kind of on a long-term uh, detour in my life where I've been away from God for so long, can God actually accept me back? Can he forgive me? Today, as we look at James, I believe we'll, have, we'll, we'll look at principles that address every single one of those questions. Very, very practical and very, very important for the body of Christ. Let's pray that God would open our hearts. Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that you would help us to see what it is that you want for us. Help us to understand what your word has to say to us. Help us not to just come in routine and just 
uh, sit through a message and s- sing some songs. But Lord, we pray that your, the words of the song would penetrate our hearts, that the words of your, this message would penetrate our hearts and that you would affirm us in the areas that we need affirmed. Would you convict us in the areas that we need convicted? Would you do a work in us as the body of Christ? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 13. I don't, uh, I've heard this to be true. In the war room within the United States of, the, uh, United States of America, they're in their war room, they meet together and they often strategize and examine how the enemy works. In order for them to defeat the enemy, they have to understand how the enemy works. And so, in a sense, this is what James does in starting off here. He is showing us how the enemy works. So our first segment is called, When Sin Defeats Us. Now, that's not what James wants for us. That's not what we want for each other. But it is a reality. We will all be defeated in life. So, in a sense, temptation is put on the operating table, and James is going to carve it out and help us to understand what is going on. We're doing an autopsy on temptation, and we're going to see what it's all about. The first question that comes up is the source. What is the source of temptation? Now, there's really kind of a question mark that goes along with it because evidently some in the church were saying God is the source of temptation. So James takes this opportunity to correct that. He says this, Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, what's interesting is the very first word that we see, let no one say when he is being tempted, the impact word, we look at that word, in the Greek, it is actually the same exact word that was used last week for trials. Now, what's interesting here is when God uses it, and that word is in the hands of God, he uses it as a trial to mold us, to conform us, to get us to where we need to go. He always tries to better us. But when that word is used in the hands of the enemy, he does something else. He wants to draw us away from God. So it's the context that determines it, but it's also whose hands it's, it, it's in. And if the enemy is always going to try to draw us away. So James says, no, no, don't let anyone say when he has been tempted, I'm being tempted from, by God. Why? Because God is pure. God is holy. He, he, is not, he is without sin. And not only will he not tempt, but he is also untemptable. Now, I know some would say, well, what about Jesus? I mean, he's part of the Trinity. He was tempted, wasn't he? Yes, he was the second person in the Trinity. God the Father wasn't, but God the Son was tempted. He was taken out into the wilderness. But what was the role of Christ? The role of Christ was to come, be tempted, live a perfect life. He didn't sin. And to become sin for us on the cross to pay that penalty. Hebrews chapter 4 says this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. So he can sympathize with us, Jesus. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. As our perfect high priest, 
Jesus was able to offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice, as 1 Peter 3.18 says, once for all, the just for the unjust. Now, we're starting to understand the source. We've eliminated God being the source. Here's an application, though. You'll see a little umbrella there. I have that icon of an umbrella because I want you to see that as a protective covering. And when we are under God's protective covering, God does something for us. He shields us. He protects us. He gives us wisdom. God would never, under his protective uh, uh, umbrella, would he ever tempt us. We've already determined that. He would never tempt us. But what he would do is provide for us, encourage us, motivate us, and help us succeed in life. This is what God always wants to do for us. And you know, it doesn't matter where you're at. You can be at the workplace, and in, in, a, in a moment's notice, when you sense that temptation, you flee under the umbrella. You just go to God in prayer. You say, God, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this whole issue of wanting to talk about somebody else or I, I, doing something unethical. I am going to your umbrella. I'm, going un I'm submitting myself to you. And it is amazing when you start to talk to God in the midst of it, the temptation goes out the window. We have a protective umbrella. Keep that in mind. We move on and we are going to see the source of temptation in the next verse, but we also see the seduction that takes place. This is the seduction of temptation in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Think about that. Each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desires. Let's talk about lured away and enticed. The word lured away and, and enticed, that phrase, means to be drawn out like an animal going after bait. After an animal that would be going after bait. Now, what we saw earlier was a funny video of children that were tempted by chocolate cake. But you know what? Everything that they did with that chocolate cake is what we have learned to do as grown-ups, just in a more sophisticated way. We're a little bit more sly. We're a little bit more cunning than that. We can cover up our temptations. But that's exactly what they do. They are looking at it. They're bobbing and weaving, and they're getting close, and then they smell it, and then they touch it, and then they're licking the thing. So this, and, and by the way, I, if you put uh, in a room a, a group of hungry adults with the ch same chocolate cake, I'm not certain that we'd have a different outcome. I'm not entirely certain. But it's the picture that there's a chocolate cake is a, a source of temptation. Well, what is your source of temptation? You go way back to Adam and Eve. This was the primary uh, appeal of the enemy to try to get Adam and Eve to sin by the forbidden fruit. Thus, we have the fruit uh, as our icon. There is something that draws us away. I don't know what your weakness is, but some of us are prone to certain things, and we have to be careful of those things. They will entice us. They will seduce us. They will draw us away from God. But why? But why? Why are you and I prone to this? It says this. You are lured away and enticed by your own desires. Now that's the source of the temptation. It's within you. 
Now, we you need to understand that because we often say the devil made me do it or the world made me do it. But right here, right now, James is saying, no, no, don't blame anybody else. It's within you, within your own desires. Now, in order to understand this phrase, our own desires, we need to understand a little background as to what God says about man. The study of man is called anthropology. It's incredibly interesting in the scriptures. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture references. If you're taking notes, it would be good for you to write down these references because we need to understand what it means by our own desires. We start off with David, where our own desires are born, where our sinful desires are born. He says in Psalm 51, he said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You know, want to know where it came from? All the way from the point of conception. We're told in Romans 5.12 that this sin nature was passed down from one person to another through our father, Adam. We're told that this sin nature is called different names. It's called the old man or the old self in Romans 6.6. 6. Now, what does this mean? It means that outside of any intervention, you and I are always going to be prone to do what's wrong. We're always going to be tempted to go the wrong way in life. If I don't have a moral compass of Christ being in my life, then I will always have that sin nature to depend on, and it will take me places I don't want to go, and, or maybe I do want to go, and it will keep me there. But what happens is that God did put an intervention for all mankind. And his intervention was the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the Holy Spirit's job is for lost people, for people that are far from God? It says, that, it says this in, in John 16, 8. He says, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin is where we're out of bounds. Righteousness is where we need to go. And judgment's what's going to happen if we don't listen to God. And we all remember that time where God finally got a hold of my heart. And I told you before on Easter that we are addicted to ourselves. It is the hardest transition to go from me surrendering all to God and for me to surrender completely to Christ because I love calling the shots. I love sin. I love doing things my own way. But I know that there's something empty inside of me. And then Jesus comes and I give my life to Christ. And all of a sudden, that according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, I confess him as Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And God starts to do a transformation at that point. You remember watching Beauty and the Beast with your granddaughter or your daughter? You remember at the very end where the, this hideously ugly beast is, is, is all of a sudden taken up in a whirlwind because he's, been, he's broken the curse and light comes out of his fingertips and out of his eye sockets and out of his toes and all of a sudden he turns from this beast to this gloriously hunk of a man. And he is set down on the earth and, and Belle and them, they kiss and embrace and it's a fairy tale. Well, I want you to know far beyond the fairy tale, this true, this, this, this transformation is true. There is something that God does when we yield our life to Christ. 
We're told in Galatians 2.20 that this happens. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. What does he mean by I? He's talking about that old nature, that sin nature, old self. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who lives. That old self is gone. It's been crucified. It's dead. But now the life I live in the flesh, this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. We're told in 1 Corinthians that there's a transformation that has taken place. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. What's he talking about? He's talking about that old nature. And so with the old nature gone, God puts a new nature. And guess who comes and lives within that new nature within our hearts? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we're told this in Ephesians 1.13. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And as a result, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 18, you've been set free. You've been set free. You're no longer a slave to sin, but according to this verse, you are now a slave to righteousness, which is awesome. Some of you might be saying, well, man, I really did, never studied the anthropology to see, see the process that man goes through. That's incredible. But I got a question for you, Steve. Even though that's all true and that old nature is gone, how come I'm still tempted? How come I'm drawn to doing what is wrong still as a believer? Well, that's because we still have this body of flesh, you know? He says the life we now live in this body we live by faith. See, the key is we got to live it by faith. We got to draw under the umbrella of God and live it by faith. And we, the thing is, we're a living sacrifice so we can move away from God if we so choose. And what God wants is for us to live by faith. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 says, But the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh so that you do not do the things that you please. Now, before it, start, before it even gets into that, he says, but walk by the Spirit. See, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. See, God's giving us the way out. You say, well, Steve, that seems like there's a pretty big civil war that's going on inside of us. There is. There will always be until we die that civil war going on. And I want you to know that we have not only our flesh. First John says the world is against us, that the enemy is against us, and our flesh. That's three against us. Man, that's an overwhelming odds, at least it feels that way. Until we realize what God says. In 1 John 4, he says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Say that with me. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We're also told in 1 John 5, 4 this. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So this is the temptation that's within. Let's move on in the passage. In the passage, we see that temptation wants to move us to a place of isolation, to seclusion. It says this, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth 
to sin. Now, the key word in this phrase is conceive. James is making an analogy with the miracle of life, but in this case, he's talking about the tragedy of death. Here, the seed that impregnates one is our fleshly desire that we just talked about. It's, it's, it starts with a desire. And then all of a sudden, we, we bob and weave and we get close to the thing that we know that we shouldn't, that sin, that thing that draws us away from God. And all of a sudden, we want to engage in it. And it lures us in. And we want to touch this sin. We want to be a part of it. My friends... We would never sin if sin wasn't beautiful. Sin is gorgeous. It's not gorgeous by God's definition, but it is gorgeous on a human level. And that's why it's so powerful. But God is more powerful. Here's the problem, though. Sin loves to lurk in darkness. Jesus said this, men will love darkness and sin will, will lurk in that darkness. You see, sin lures us off from the umbrella of God and it takes us into the protective covering of darkness. And this is where there are people in the church that are living a double life. They're living secret sins. Now, I say this based on so many testimonies over the last 30 years of people who said, I was one way when I went to church, and I was another way when I was in, in, in public, or I had these secret things that were going on in our life. Please understand, they can be secret for a while, but they are only secret to you and maybe to those around, but they are not secret to God. Psalm 90 verse 8 says this, very piercing. He says, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. There is nothing that we can hide from God. You know, you can conceal a pregnancy for so long, but eventually it will be made known. It will be made known. This is the way it is with temptation and sin. And it says in our passage that there's a verdict to this. And the verdict or the sentence to temptation, the gavel goes down and he says, you deserve death. Death. Now there's two applications to death, this idea of death. The first application would be to those that are far away from God. Just know that the death has already occurred because you are spiritually dead according to Ephesians 2. You are spiritually dead, but God will quicken your heart. You simply have to believe on Jesus Christ. But if we go throughout this life, having never yielded our life to Christ, then when we pass from this life to the next, then we will face eternal punishment because you have to pay for your sin. God made it available for him to pay for it, but if you refuse in your pride, then you will pay for it for all eternity. That's a reality. But the second application of death is for the believer. Now, you're spiritually alive. We know you've been made alive. We sang about it the very first song, when you came to faith in Christ. We studied it just a minute ago. Now, you're not going to die. You get to know, look forward to that time you're with God. But I will tell you this, that if we persist in disobedience, there have been times where God has brought about physical death to the believer. 
Look at Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 30. Those that were abusing the Lord's Supper, God took them away. Years ago, I had a friend of mine. He was a minister for the gospel for so long, but he had a, in his past a heroin, heroin addiction. And he relapsed after 20 years of sobriety. I, 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 it was just horrible. And he went out on this binge, and for months on end, we couldn't find him. And finally, he came to his senses, and finally I was able to get together with him. And I looked at my brother, and I said, if you don't stop this, God's going to take you home, and I don't want to do your funeral. You're dragging the name of God through the mud. Stop it. Stop it. Within a year, I did his funeral. There are times that this happens. So what's the faith principle that we learn from this? Sin will always draw us away from God. That's the goal of sin. That's the goal of the enemy. He wants to draw us away from God. That's our first faith principle. Well, let me give you some ABCs. You know, in the children's department, they have ABCs that they have in coming to faith in Christ. Well, we have ABCs in dealing with this idea that Satan wants to draw us away from God. Number one, admit your sin. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. B, we should believe in Christ. We should want to be clothed in Christ and we should want him to interact in every level, in every aspect of our life. Romans 13 says this, the hour has come for you to wake up, church. Wake up. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus. We're to believe in Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. A, admit your sin. B, believe in Christ. C, choose the way out. Because there is a, a, a path that God will give us. No temptation has overtaken man, but uh, that is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will always provide a way of escape. Choose the way of escape. As we go through this last song, or the sec uh, next to last song, Overcome, I want you to think about being an overcomer, having victory. But in order for us to do it, we have to be honest with God. Where are you at? No one has to know your confession. We all sin. So let's confess our hearts. Let's have clean hearts today by coming before God. If you want to stand, you can stand. If you want to kneel, you can kneel. If you want to come up here and pray with me, I will pray with you. But let's do work with God. Destined to die 
God's only son, perfect and spotless one. He never sinned, but suffered as if he did.
Father, I thank you that you give us the ability to overcome. And I thank you, Father, that your spirit lives within us and that greater is he who's within us. Thank you that you assure us of victory as we draw close to you and that you give us a pathway out. And so we thank you for that, Father. Would you continue to use your word to encourage our hearts? Amen. Let's quickly just finish up our passage. We only have a few short verses, but now we're going to transition into the positive of when faith defeats temptation. This is a good part. There's the first principle that we get from our passage, and that is the choice of victory. The choice for victory, it says this, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Pretty simple, straight to the point. Do you see the path? See, he's saying, you don't have to be duped as a believer. You don't have to be tricked. There is a path that is before you. Before you. There is a path of righteousness. There is a path of unrighteousness. But you can choose the right way. You have the power within you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you can be victorious. The fact is sin is always a decision. Victory is always a decision. We just choose what we do moment by moment, day by day. We make the choice. And so that's the very first thing that James wants us to understand. There's a path, there's a choice that is before us. What are we going to do? Will we choose victory? The second thing he points out is that there's a source of victory. And watch this. If we understand the source of victory, it will end in worship. Let's see what he says in verse 17. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting or shift, uh, variation or shadow due to change. Now, God is obviously the source of victory in this verse. He is the source of victory, but take a look at what victory looks like to God. God sees it as a victorious thing that He gives us everything we need. He gives us good, and He gives us perfect gifts. Now, that lets us know two things. It knows us two things. Number one, that He gives you everything that you need in this life, that you don't have to chase after the corrupt things of the world to be satisfied, He will fulfill. Every single time, God will fulfill. But the second thing it shows us is that we are the object of His affection. He is our Father. That's why he says he is the father of lights. In the, Jewish, in the Jewish economy, that was kind of a poetic statement to say he is the father of creation, but the father of me as well. He's the one who put the sun and the stars and the moon all in place. And what's interesting is that the sun and the moon and the stars, they could all be covered with clouds. They could be twinkling one moment and, and they seem to be gone. They vanish. There's a shifting and there's a, a changing in the skies. But then he uses this to make the point that that's not God. God never shifts. He never changes. He's always immovable. And that is the source that we have in our life, the source of love, the source of victory. And our response to that should be simply worship. It should be worship. When we come in here, when we sing songs, when we read the word, when we preach the word, it's all about worship. It's not about my preferences. It's about what God wants to teach us through this whole event. But God wants us to have victory through worship. 
See, vic- worship is a key part of our victory. You remember when your child got scared? And all of a sudden, I remember my daughter or my sons, when they, got, they were afraid, they all of a sudden turned to dad and their arms went up. They went up to me because I was a pillar of strength in their life. My friends, God is that pillar of our strength. When you are in the middle of the the storm, when you are in the middle of that temptation, he is the one that is there 24-7. You can call upon him at any time and worship him. Just worship him. Now, the final thing we see here is the victory, the prize in victory. Now, this is awesome because the prize is a little bit different than what you might think. It says this, of his, God's own will, he brought for us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, the prize in this verse, the prize is everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. You are the prize of God. If you are redeemed, you are the prize of God. And you need to realize that. It says the one who made the prize possible is God because he paved the way by sending his son. But the recipients of the pride is all of creation, all the creatures of this world, all the people that are left on this world. Notice the progression. He says first in the passage of his own will, meaning God was the initiator of our salvation. He saved us as an expression of our deep love. God so loved us. He did this for us. Here's the second thing we see in this. He used his word to draw us to a place of conviction and to lead us to truth. All this God did is an act of his love. And finally, he says that he made us his first fruits. The first fruits. Now, the Jew that read that immediately tapped into it. You and I, not so much. But for the Jewish person, all their life, they were instructed, bring your best to God. Bring your best to God. Bring 10% of your crops. Bring 10% of your cattle. Bring your best to God. And that is the foundation by which we have tithing in the church today. Tithe means 10%. 10% giving our best to God. It's the first check that we write, not the last check. That's the idea of giving our best to God. Now, put it in the context of this passage. He is saying, you are the best of God. You are his first creation. You are the first fruits of his creation. You are the representative of Christ, and you are to live it out amongst the rest of creation. You are the testimony. We are kids of the kids, kids of the king. We would always tell our kids as they were going out the, out the door for school, we'd say, remember whose kids you are. You're a child of the king. And that's what we need to remember is that we are a child of the king. Therefore, the king wants us to live in an honorable way. So God has blessed us so that we will be a blessing to others. But get this. If we are sidetracked on temptation and sin, we then begin to mar the name of God and that's counterproductive for what God intends for us. And so our second faith principle is simply this. Faith will always draw us towards God. As we sing this last song, I want you to think about three more, AB, uh, three more things. There are another ABCs. But this is practical for your life as well. A is accountability this time. 
if you know there's a point of weakness, maybe you're, you just have an addiction to something, or maybe there's just something that you, you overdo, you know it's a temptation, it's a struggle in your life, it's been there. Get accountability. B, be smart. Avoid the areas where you're tempted. If, you, if, if you're tempted to being overeating, then stay away from the pastry section at Panera. Just avoid it altogether. If you are addicted, if you have a pornography issue, get rid of the computer. Put, go to Triple X Church. Get some accountability in your life. If you're addicted to or you have a problem with, be smart. Figure out where the problem is. Back away from it one step so that you avoid that altogether. And see, call on God. That's worship. We're to do that at all times.